calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. The outlook for the Asia-Pacific exchange-traded products industry and key global trends for ETFs and other exchange-traded products. This is the topic of the conversation today. I'm Sam Lum from the Asia-Pacific Regional Office of CFA Institute, and joining us here is Deborah Fur, partner and co-founder of ETFGI, an independent research and consultancy firm. Deborah was formerly global head of ETF research and implementation strategy and a managing director at BlackRock and Barclays Global Investors. And prior to that, she worked in the exchange-traded products and related areas for 11 years at Morgan Stanley. She's been named as one of the top 100 women in finance by Financial News from 2007 to 2009. Debbie, thanks for being here with us today. today. Since the launch of the first RQV ETFs in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange this summer, these ETFs have attracted considerable attention. The governments in China and Hong Kong seem to be quite interested in developing the industry for ETFs and other exchange-traded products. What's your view on the prospects of the exchange-traded products industry in the Greater China region? I think that the ETF industry in Greater China will continue to grow on a lot of different levels. Um, We've seen that the ability to invest in the China Asia market originally through synthetic ETFs and today through physically backed ETFs is something that's being embraced by institutional investors more broadly than just in Asia. So you see that investors in Europe, in Latin America, the Middle East, um, and the rest of Asia are using these products as a unique tool to get exposure to the Asia market, which Although many firms can apply for quotas, you find that often they might be waiting for quota, sometimes they've used up their quota, so the ETFs allow firms without quotas to be able to gain access to the mainland market. So whether it's a broad index or whether it's sectors, I think this is part of the way that China is allowing more investors to have access to the mainland market. We also find that within China, there is an ETF market for the mainland Chinese, and you're finding that that is also growing quite significantly, and I expect that that will continue to grow as the mutual fund industry is also growing in China. And many of the qualified domestic institutional investors in China who can invest outside of China have been embracing using ETFs for foreign exposure. So we find that ETFs are allowing foreigners to get access to mainland China, and it's allowing the institutional investors in China to gain access outside of China. So I think ETFs are tools that allow you to get your asset allocation right, whether it's to equities, developed emerging frontier markets, other asset classes, in a very easy way. And as you know from studying, you would see that you know, getting your asset allocation right will describe about 90% of the variation returns. And so I think ETFs can be useful tools for building portfolios. 
And then clearly we have ETFs trading on 14 other, or in 14 other countries across Asia. So we have um, ETF markets growing in many other countries and expect that those will continue also. Japan, Korea, Australia and India also have rather sizable capital markets. What are the prospects for ETFs and exchange-traded products in these countries? Well, that's an interesting question because each of those markets you mentioned is slightly different. Um, so maybe starting with Australia, what we found in Australia is that the regulations have changed such that financial advisors are no longer allowed to be paid to sell products. And so what you find is as financial advisors are moving from being paid to sell to providing advice and being paid for advice, they tend to embrace ETFs quite a bit. And so the last time I was out there, which was just four months ago, you found that many people, even retail investors, would say they use ETFs in their self-managed super accounts, so for their long-term savings. So you find that where advisors are not paid to distribute specific products, ETFs are being embraced by retail financial advisors as well as institutions. And that's probably one of the most unique things about ETFs because normally financial products you find institutions have a broad array of products offered to them at low cost, and retail and financial advisors tend to have a small toolbox of products and offer at a higher price than you would find for institutions. So ETFs are a very democratic product that everyone has the same toolbox, and at the same annual cost, that tends to be lower than other financial products. When you look at um, Korea, it's one of the markets that's very active in ETFs. Um, they're the most actively traded ETF market out here in Asia. So if you look at trading volumes, they would be the highest if you look across Asia. Um, and we continue to see that one growing. They have very many managers, um, and they also use some of the foreign ETFs. If we look at the Japanese market, you tend to find that it historically has been dominated by the large um, locally domiciled firms that also have distribution. Um, Many of the ETFs that are listed in Japan today are providing exposure to the Japanese market. So one thing you have to be aware of is that quite often investors in Asia are still buying many of the products listed in the U.S. because when they want exposure to the S&P 500 or S&P 500 sectors, you often don't have those same tools here. And the products across Asia tend to be focused on equity benchmarks. There's a lot of fixed income products listed in the U.S. and Europe that are embraced by investors across Asia. Um, so if we look at um, Hong Kong and Singapore, you find that quite often people are trying to decide, should I have products in Hong Kong or should I have products in Singapore? And I think there's this ongoing debate going on about which is the better place to be. Um, you know, One of the things that is challenging in Asia is, unlike Europe where we have the USITS mutual fund structure, which allows you easily to passport across Europe as well as out to Asia, we don't yet have a passporting mutual fund recognition here in Asia. So that's one of the challenges that people feel they need to choose, which place do I want to be? So there is a bit of competition going on. Today we see that the products in Hong Kong are trading a bit more than Singapore, but both of the markets are growing and I think will continue to grow given there's a lot of wealth out here in Asia that is embracing the ETFs. And the last one would be um, India. So India is an interesting story. So clearly, India, the ETFs in India are really only available to the local investors in India because of foreign investor requirements. So you have to get permission, like you do in other markets, to invest into India. So what you find is it is a developing ETF market internally, 
but you often find that the way many non-Indian investors gain access to India is through ETFs. So ETFs listed in the U.S., Europe, or Asia that allow you to invest into the Indian market have been very popular because you don't need to have the foreign investor status to invest directly. And so the Indian government actually looks at how much foreigners are using foreign ETFs to invest into India. So that's been a useful tool for foreigners. And it's also proving to be popular in India where we're hearing now that the government is looking at maybe launching an ETF similar to what was launched here as a tracker fund in Hong Kong, allowing them to take shares that the government owns in Indian companies and transfer them into an ETF. So they're discussing looking at doing that now. So ETFs are clearly being embraced in many different ways across uh, Asia. There are now some so-called active ETFs in various markets. And we have one here in the Hong Kong Stock Exchange as well. The creation redemption process and the transparency of holdings appear to be the key issues with these. How exactly do these work and what are the important things to watch out for? That's a great question. And clearly, active ETFs have created a lot of discussion in the media. Today, if we look globally, um, active ETFs globally, there's 85 of them. And globally, if we look at the number of ETFs and ETPs, we have almost 5,000. So they're not large when it comes to number of products. And in terms of assets today, the global industry has almost 1.8 trillion US dollars. The active ETFs account for 0.5% of that. So there's still a small slice. And the reason they're small is today for a real ETF that's a fund, the regulations are in general requiring daily transparency. So the challenge would be, let's pretend that you are an active portfolio manager and you're running a very concentrated portfolio and you're delivering alpha, so good returns above the benchmark. It's unlikely that you would want to tell the world every day, here's the stocks that are in my fund because people could copy you. And that's kind of your secret sauce. So you don't tell you know, everyone your grandmother's famous recipe for whatever the family recipe is. Um, so you find that it's challenging to find well-known, concentrated, active portfolio managers who want to become ETF managers if they have to provide that transparency. So I think that's been a bit of the challenge of active ETFs. It's tended to be less well-known portfolio managers launching active strategies. And the other challenge is um, just because something is active doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get alpha. So if we look at the studies that have been done for many years about the performance of active funds relative to their benchmark, we tend to find in most well-developed markets that active funds have a hard time beating their benchmark. So typically you'd find that you know, in the U.S., 81.2% of large-cap active managers last year did not beat the S&P 500. And that number has not changed much over time. So I think that's the challenge is if you're looking for alpha, you look for those managers, and if you find them, that's great, and you go for them. But the challenge is just because someone becomes an active manager or an active ETF doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get alpha. There has been considerable concern about counterparty and related risks of synthetic exchange-traded products. Physical ETPs could also have similar risks where there are security lending activities. How should investors assess these risks and compare synthetic ETPs against physical ETPs in general? You know, that's a really good question. I think one important thing to remember is 
one, you should look at the structure of the product you're investing in, because quite often people will call all of these products ETFs, and some of the products are actually structured as notes, right? So you need to look at what is the structure of the product you're investing in. But knowing that they're all funds, it means that they're regulated like funds in the country where they're domiciled. So in the U.S., ETFs are all 40-act funds. In Europe, they're USITS funds. Out here, they'd be Hong Kong funds or Singapore funds. So what that means is they're following the same guidelines as other funds in terms of diversification, what they can invest in, counterparty, et cetera. So if you have concerns about securities lending or synthetic, you have to be aware that other funds that are structured as USITs or 40-act funds will be doing similar things. So there are caps in terms of within a synthetic product, a swap counterparty cannot be more than 10% of NAV. So you would look at that. You would look at what is the collateral being held, who is the counterparty, um, and so assess the structure. The products in Europe that are synthetic as well as out here would not be able to exist in the U.S. because the mutual fund guidelines in the U.S. do not allow you to trade with an affiliated entity. So what that means is it would be impossible to have the structure we have in Europe and Asia where you have one group that would be the provider, swap counterparty, authorized participant, and market maker. So I think you need to look at that and see, are you comfortable with it? The synthetic products have allowed investors to get exposure to markets that are otherwise difficult or impossible. So if we go back to thinking about investing in mainland China, if the peanut structure wasn't embraced, which is synthetic, we wouldn't have had the early um, A-share products. So synthetic was the only way to gain access to um, China for a very long time. So it has allowed us to get exposure to difficult asset classes or ones that just aren't possible to do physically. So you think about commodities, you also have to do that in a synthetic fashion. So I think understanding the products, understanding counterparties, understanding costs are all part of what you need to look at when you're comparing products. Perhaps we could wrap up by talking about some key trends you see developing in the global ETP industry and how these could influence the Asia-Pacific markets. That's a good question. So the trends that we're seeing is, I think, is that ETFs are continuing to be embraced by more investors. So whether we're talking institutions, and that's everything from sovereign wealth funds, it's pension plans, endowments, it's hedge funds, it's asset managers, it's private banks, to the financial advisors, to retail. We're seeing that growth continue across all of those segments, partially being driven by regulatory changes where we see in Europe that the retail distribution review, or what's called RDR in the UK and Holland and Denmark, is encouraging financial advisors to look at the whole of the market and no longer, if they want to be independent, can they be paid to distribute products. So we see that encouraging the look at, at least, of ETFs. We're also seeing ETFs being used to, well, design entire portfolios. So whether we're talking target date strategies, lifestyle, risk profile returns, these portfolios in the U.S. have grown at a rate of over 800% over the past three years. So today, they account for about $50 billion in assets. And so that ability to build portfolios that are designed to deliver different targeted returns is something that's growing out here in Asia. It's growing in Europe. So I think new users, new ways of using ETFs, because we've seen that ETFs for the first 11 years we're only on equity benchmarks. Today, fixed income and commodity products are growing. And the use of ETFs 
in addition is growing in terms of net new asset flows. So through the end of August, we saw $143 billion of net new money go into ETFs. That's $23 billion more than the same time last year. And mutual fund data tends to be a bit delayed in how quickly you can see it. So if we look at the U.S. market and look at net flows into mutual funds for the first half of the year, it was minus $62 billion. The same time period, ETFs in the U.S. had inflows of $72 billion. So we're seeing that investors are preferring ETFs because they allow you to get exposure anytime during the trading day to many different asset classes. So given the uncertainty in terms of what's happening in the Eurozone, U.S. elections, different views on China, many investors have moved to more tactically adjusting their allocations, and ETFs are increasingly being used by those investors. Debbie, thank you for sharing your thoughts on ETFs and other exchange-traded products, as well as the key trends in the industry with us today. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the CFA Institute Take 15 series. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.